Hey, church family, welcome to another online service. Excited to be together. Just want to encourage you, invite you to join in this time of worship as we celebrate our King. Jesus 
That's why I sing your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my Father God, I lift up a blessing over our church that's watching this online. I pray that we would continue to put on garments of praise day in and day out. I pray that our faint spirit would pass away. I pray that you draw near to us wherever we are. We're watching this out of time, out of place. But your spirit is near. Lord, we greet you in garments and robes of righteousness and praise. We're going to sing this one more time. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my Ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Thank you so, so much, worship team. Hello, everyone out there online. It's so good to be with you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I have a couple of announcements. The first one is, man, how amazing is it that we have a God that bends down to listen to us when we, when we cry out to him? Um, that we have this avenue of prayer to go before him. And man, we would just love to partner with you in prayer this week. Please text any prayer request to 97,000, and we'd love to pray for you this week. Hey, we've got so, so much going on here at the church. Go ahead and check out the website. We've got all events coming up. There's information about ministries, Bible studies, etc. Go to the website, check it all out. There's so much information on there for you. Also, uh, what you can do on the website, man, if you've been blessed by these messages and videos and services every week, and you'd consider uh, donating to the church, you can do that online through the Give tab. That would be amazing. All right, now as we get into a time in God's Word, let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Dear Lord, um, God, just thank you for who you are, for your character. Um, Lord, thank you that you've given us your Word um, for us to know you better. And Lord, I just pray that you'd use this time now, that you'd shape us, that you'd sharpen us, that you'd change us, Lord. We uh, genuinely come to you with open hands today and say, Lord, what do you want to say to us? So Lord, we love you. We give you this time now. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
All right. Well, thank you, worship team, and uh, thank you, Josh. Excited to be back uh, together with you, uh, especially online here, and getting a chance to continue working through the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're continuing chapter five. Josh did a great job with that last week as we talked about the high priest and what an amazing reality, knowing that we have a high priest that relates with us, that uh, knows the things that we're going through. Well, this week, you may have noticed the title of this. I'm calling this section of scripture, Failure to Launch. And I don't know what comes to mind when you hear that, that expression, failure to launch. Often it brings to mind somebody that's maybe a little bit later in life still living in their parents' basement, or at least that's if you're in the Midwest. If you're here in California, it's more likely not a basement, more likely someone's still living at home as they get uh, further and further along in life. That's the image that comes to mind with the picture of failure to launch, but just as a little, little disclaimer, I actually really appreciated the number of years post-college that I got to live at home, got to save up a little bit, got to uh, save towards our first uh, uh, house. And so really, uh, when I get, got married was when I actually fully moved out of the house. And so I don't want to give a, a hard time to the people that are uh, trying to be wise with their, their resources. But what I think that I want to point towards with this title, Failure to Launch, is that those that they're intentionally avoiding adult responsibilities, intentionally avoiding adult responsibilities, somebody that's wanting to resist what our culture is encouraging us to, and it's not an unhealthy encouragement, is there's a progression that's intended to happen in somebody's life. As they get older, there should be a progression towards independence self-reliance, self-sufficiency, so they can start their lives independent of the family they've been brought up in. So failure to launch comes to mind for that in a, in a societal sense, but in a spiritual sense, it's a little different meaning. In a, in a spiritual sense, it's something also, as you dig into God's word, that's expected of us. The longer we've been walking with the Lord, there's an expectation for growth. There's an expectation that if you've chosen to follow Jesus Christ, that you'd be growing in a knowledge of him, that you'd be growing in your obedience uh, uh, to him, that you'd be growing in your relationship with him. There should be a, a progression forward. In fact, it's a little bit concerning if there's not. So many have made a decision for Jesus Christ that they can point back to in uh, their younger years. They look back on that big decision. But truth be told, if they reflect on their life, there's not a whole lot of movement forward. After that initial decision, there's been really no, uh, play, no implementation of spiritual disciplines that they've put in place. It's been it's, if someone were honest, it's real hard to see any kind of evidence of fruits of the Spirit in their life. There's no pattern of serving within the local church. Giving's not on the radar for sure. This person also, you'd point and look at their life and, and really there's no desire or attempt to share their faith with somebody else. Really, it's a bit concerning for that person. And that's exactly who our author is confronting this week, saying, hey, Listen, this is serious as it relates to uh, e eternal security and whether somebody's saved or not saved. He, he's making sure that there's an assurance 
of salvation. So reading through this section of scripture, I don't know how to describe it other than a, a stiff kick to the rear quarters. And I know I felt that as I was diving in this week. And I'm just praying that the Lord would meet each of us exactly where we're at, even in these moments as we start uh, breaking down this text. Let me just pray briefly before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time uh, to get into your word. And sometimes I realize when we're in sections of scripture, it's encouraging, it's uplifting, but sometimes it's just a, a strong word. And I know that a lot of us, that's what it, exactly what it takes to, to stir us, to move us towards change. And so we ask that in this time together, uh, working through Hebrews chapter 5 and into chapter 6, that you'd, you'd meet us and you'd uh, do what you need to do because these matters are so serious. God, I submit this time to you. Ask that your Holy Spirit would be present and moving even as we uh, speak and gather around this text. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to start where Josh had left off last week. So chapter 5, verse 11, as always, helpful for looking at this together. It says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. All right, so a lot going on there. First, what does he start? He says, we have much to say about this. Much to say about what? Basically jumping from the topic we were just discussing last week, the topic of Jesus as the high priest, as the one who offered eternal salvation to all who obey him. That was the subject that he's just coming out of. And he's saying basically, as, as much as we have more to say about that, and you sense a little bit of frustration in the author's tone, he says, it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In other words, before I can teach you deeper things about the faith, I need, I need some degree of a commitment to learn. I need participation on the learner's part if there's going to be any transfer of information. Really, if you look at other translations, this phrase here is used as dull of hearing. It comes from the Greek word, which is nothros, which means no push. In other words, there's no effort. There's no push towards growth. That's really a scary reality that he's calling them out to. And it's something that we realize really in a number of arenas of our life is basically this. If there's no effort, there will be no progress. No effort equals no progress. Think about that in any arena of your life. Think about if for the, somebody that wants to get be in better shape, what, what's necessary? If there's no effort, there's no progress, but we know the things to do. If we, if we try to eat wise, if we exercise consistently, there's going, to be there's going to be progress. There's going to be a progression with that. Similar in other arenas, mental health demands that you have a, a filter 
on what you take in, that you need to surround yourself with positive influences, things that are going to build up and not tear down, learning to control your emotions, learning to, as scripture describes, take every thought captive. Those are things that if you're intentional about them, you're going to see progress. How about marriage? A marriage only thrives if you have two people that are working on it. In fact, as I meet with different couples over the years and processing through their marriage, I'm not even interested in meeting with a couple more than once or twice unless I sense both parties are interested in participating and working on that marriage. That's what he's saying here to his audience. He's saying, he's saying it's clear that I can't, I can't keep teaching you because you're no longer trying to understand. I think it's interesting that he uses the term no longer here. It shows something. It shows that at one point they were trying, but now they're not. Really, and that's a, a scary reality in the Christian life that maybe as you reflect on this and try to personalize this, could that be said of you? At one point, you took your walk with Jesus Christ really serious. You put effort into it. You actually tried to, to move and progress forward, but over time, it's been put further and further on the back burner, and one might even question whether it's a priority at all in your life. Here, he's describing this, this idea of no effort equals no progress. But here's the expectation, is that as time passes, there should be movement forward. I'm going to show this picture of my son Chase in this board here. I don't know if you have one of these growing up, uh, this, this idea of something that charts your growth. Maybe it was just written on a wall with little check marks, but my wife made this really cool board over the years. And you usually revisit that growth bo board or growth chart, uh, usually on birthdays, maybe if they're anxious to grow, it might be every six months. And it's kind of fun to mark that and see the progression as, okay, year one, they got to this height. Year two, they got to this height. And now my son getting closer and closer to passing me in, in height as he's uh, racing on six foot. It's kind of, kind of fun to see that progression. And in fact, when you're watching that chart, you would think, you know what, if this time has passed and there's no movement forward, something's not right. Especially during all of those growth years, there's the expectation when time passes that there's movement forward. Now, granted, on those charts, not every one of the kids, as we've watched the three of them, grows at the same pace or rate. Some of them have big jumps between age one age and another. Others don't as much. It's real interesting to follow, and I think that's a similar parallel here, but there's an expectation that there's growth forward. He says, as he's talking about these, the author's talking about these believers, he says this, he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. In other words, they've been around it. They've been exposed to truth enough that there should be a progression forward. They're at the place where they're ready to pass on information to the next generation or the next group of people. But instead, the alternative, what does he say? Rather than teaching, they need someone to teach you elementary truths of God's word all over again. The term elementary truth is equivalent to saying the ABCs of faith. He's like, hey, we have to go back to the very basics with you because there's not movement forward. It's a confront. He's confronting them with their lack of growth. 
He uses an example that every parent would understand, the, the idea of milk and solid food. And the picture of milk, you understand that you start an infant off with milk. And as they get accustomed to that, you gradually move them to more solids. It's fun to see some of the, the parents around us as they're introducing their young little kids to more and more food. And then ultimately you build up so that they're able to eat solid food. This idea you don't start a, a baby right out of the gates, out of the womb eating steak, but that's a, a, a appropriate target in life. Because the more you partake and the more you enjoy, you're like, man, I was missing out when I was just settling for milk. This last week, I was with uh, some good friends of ours from Chicago, and we got to go to a, uh, a steak restaurant called Ruth Chris. I don't know if you've had a chance to try that before. Comes out with these just amazing steaks. The, the, the plate that they're on is like at 250 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever it is, and then the steaks just melt in your mouth, and you're just like, imagine if you would have just stuck with milk over the years. You would have missed out on that. That's why this illustration makes so much sense in the, spiritual, uh, in the spiritual arena. Man, you're missing out on so much when you're settling for milk. So the question is, how do we go from infant to maturity? Look what the text says. It's right there in scripture. It says, by constant use, talking about God's word, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Through constant use, this idea of this picture of like, hey, this takes some, some effort towards this. I like the idea of being in God's word and training for righteousness and being training the difference between uh, right and wrong. This idea of, of train there has this picture of, uh, of laying a foundation. And really, if you think through how the walk with, how our walks with Christ work is we're laying the foundation of God's word in our and planting it in us so that the Holy Spirit has content to work with to convict us of. You see, when he has that material to work with, then he can nudge you. Man, remember when you learned this? Remember when you learned that? You see, the reality is every single believer, whether they realize it or not, has a level of theology in their life. What they understand about God, about this, this life, what's appropriate, what's not. And here's the, the scary thing is we have a choice as to where that theology comes from. Some of us, it's well-rooted and deeply rooted in God's word because we have actually trained ourselves in God's word. But others, unfortunately, not so much. It's rooted on their preferences or their opinions or how they feel because they haven't educated their conscience through the consistent study of God's word. And truthfully, that leaves us super vulnerable to deception. And when confusion reigns in the culture in which we're placed, so many different areas that we're confronted with that are really, honestly, clearly outlined in Scripture. Just a, a few that I jotted down that comes to mind that are clearly seen in Scripture, the sanctity of human life, a gender identity, same-sex relationship, God's design for marriage, so his thoughts on sex outside of marriage, business ethics, the list goes on and on. Things that we shouldn't be confused on because God's word speaks directly to them. But when we're not trained and we're not educating our conscience about what is right and wrong, we're in a really vulnerable spot where our emotion leads rather than our head uh, directing us. 
And our culture bombards us with all kinds of shocking behavior and it presents it to us as if it's neutral and it's subject to personal preferences, but it's not. It's actually the majority of things, if you actually dig into God's word, you can find the direction in that specific topic. That's why we need to train to see the difference between right and wrong. You might remember all the way back in the garden, what was the tree that Adam and Eve were tempted to partake from? is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by partaking from that tree, they were saying, all right, no longer is God going to determine right and wrong, good and evil in my life. I'm gonna be the one that makes that decision. Only the, pro the only problem is we are not qualified to make that decision, only he is. So as a Christ follower, we're trying to get back to the garden where he is the one that's deciding right and wrong, good and evil. That's why we need his help. That's why we need to be in his word consistently. Continue in the text. So first idea is the kind of a, a rebuke for not putting in the work, but we get a glimpse of God's heart here with this charge to move forward. It says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead the, and eternal judgment and God permitting, we will do so. We will do so. So now what? What's, what's happening here? We learn a lot about God's heart here by how the direction in which he changes course here. Instead of dwelling and kind of rubbing our noses in our shortcomings, our failure to, to mature, he brings it up and then he moves on to a charge to move forward. I love that when you get glimpses of his heart. He's not looking to, to grind us out and kind of rub our noses in our failures. Instead, he's saying, well, now let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. Let's keep moving forward. And what are those elementary teachings about Christ? The section can see, com, seem confusing at first what he's talking about, but I really like how the New Living Translation words this section. I think it captures it well what he's saying. He's saying, we're going to move past the elementary teaching. And so here in, the verse, in the, these verses, I like the New Living Translation it says, surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Saying, not saying that there's anything wrong with those things. Those are foundational truths. He's pointing to those things. He's saying, now it's time for us to move forward to more in intentional things that relate to us and how we engage with the world around us. So moving past the elementary thing. And it says, after moving forward, it says, and God permitting, we will do so. In other words, and God permitting, we will mature. We will move forward. And guess what? He does uh, desire that for us. I had this uh, funny season growing up in our, in our household where my mom went on this uh, bit of a kick, or you might even say uh, tangent that she went on, where anytime we made some kind of a statement, us three kids, some kind of statements about our plans and what we're hoping to do. We'd say, whether it was simple or big, she would always want to add on the end of the statement, Lord willing. 
God, this idea, and and it got really carried away, became a little bit of a joke in our our family, where you'd be like, hey, what are you up to? And I'm just heading up to my room. And she would add, well, Lord willing. The idea that was kind of, she was trying to imprint in our mind was this. She was trying to make sure that we understood we weren't going to do anything in our own strength. And we couldn't presume on the future. And so she wanted us to be, have as much dependence on God as possible, understanding that this wasn't something that you just work harder at. Similar with this text, when I read that, those couple uh, words at the end of that section, it says, and God permitting, we will do so. Just like my mom wanted us to understand that we weren't going to move forward without his support. Similar, anytime you're having a conversation about spiritual growth, about maturing, it's not something that you're like, all right, I need to dig in. I need to try harder. I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. You see, that would have been a a strong temptation, especially for this audience that was coming out of Judaism that was a completely a works-based religion. For them, they had to understand it was only going to be possible, movement forward was only possible if done in God's strength. I love that Jesus explains this clearly in John 15, four through five. Uh, One of my favorite passages, he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the question is, what does that abide look like? If you're, or you're wanting to grow and mature, what does it look like to do that with him? I like that word abide because I think it, it tells us a little something. I found with my three teenage kids, anytime they're hanging out with a group of friends, I'll try to get a little bit of feedback about their experience. Like, hey, what did you guys do? What were you guys up to? Almost always they have a, a uh, the this, this same exact response. Almost always I hear them say, well, we just hung out. And I was like, well, can you give me a little something more than that? Oh, nothing, dad. We were just hanging out. It's no big deal. I like that idea of the word abide kind of being synonymous with the idea of hanging out. This idea when you actually dig in and find out what that involved, that means they're sitting around talking they're laughing, they're sharing thoughts, they're hearing thoughts, they were, they're, they're processing through their, their week, their life. And really, if you think about it, that's the kind of relationship that Jesus is inviting us to. Shared experience, going through, processing through things together. That's definitely something that I want to grow in, in my relationship with him. But I think that's at the core of maturing, of moving forward has to do and can only happen, as he says in John, only happen when we abide, when we're connected to the vine. Otherwise, we just get busy kind of running after something and trying harder and giving up on it and falling by the wayside. So continuing in the text, this idea is as he's kind of processing through growth in a believer. Verse four says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are 
They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it was farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So that's a, a pretty intense section of scripture. What in the world is our author trying to say here? Is he trying to say that you can't drift for a, a season and have any hope of coming back? It's interesting this week, a couple different responses to this section of scripture in my study. First off, I usually interact with Chad about the, the, the passage that we're going through as he's trying to choose a, a song connected to it. And he texted me this week. And he's like, man, that's a spicy meatball. So definitely this section of scripture, that's a good description. It's a spicy meatball. Then I was digging into some commentaries I'm familiar with. And one pastor, his name's Pastor Cole, that I usually like to read what he has to say. He said, this is possibly the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament to interpret. Wow. So good luck with that. But here's the thing is I, I think there's a number of different interpretations and there's a number of different directions that you could take them. This is where in my study and in my own personal conviction, trying to be led by the Holy Spirit, and this is where I would say that I've landed on this. For some would make the argument, see, this is a, a case for why somebody can lose their salvation. But I don't believe that that's the case. I believe uh, th that it's just the opposite. In fact, it describes here, it's important to understand when it says it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. So the first question to answer is who are these people that have been enlightened? That are once been. The once been means that in the past, something in the past. What I would say that group of people, and it'll make sense as we work through it a little bit further, this is the same group of people described in the parable in Matthew 13 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago of the seed being thrown out on different soils. Do you remember that parable? This idea was that the farmer was throwing uh, seeds out and based on where it landed, some took a little bit of root and started to grow and then were maybe burned out by the heat. Some were, uh, were taken out by the weeds. Some of them actually took root and actually were established. The whole passage is talking about this idea of false conversions. People that seem to be heading that direction, but over time, it exposed the fact that they weren't genuine believers. That's what I believe this group that is talking about. And he's describing it really clearly. They were exposed to truth. They felt the tug of the Holy Spirit. They were attracted by the, the word of God. They saw his power, look at it there in the text, saw his power on display through miracles. But eventually, they turned away from it. Their hearts were hardened, if you will. Although they looked like for a while they were saved as time passed, their ex actions exposed that they were never saved at all. So is it somebody that was saved that lost their salvation? I would say no. It's somebody that was never actually saved. So what's the problem with that explanation here? Well, a couple issues that I see there in the text as I was processing through this. How can somebody be, how can it be describing somebody that was brought back to repentance? If they never had it, how could they be brought back to it? 
wouldn't, you make, wouldn't that description seem to describe somebody that was once saved? But here's that we understand as you look at in scripture is there's a number of cases of repentance that doesn't lead to salvation. I use an example in Matthew 27, verse three through five of Judas, who after he had betrayed Jesus, do you remember his response? He tried desperately to, to bring back the, the, the handful of coins and give it back to the priests, but they wouldn't receive it. And he ends up ultimately taking, hanging himself and taking his own life. You see, there was repentance there, but there was no picture, there was no exposure to God's grace in his story. So I'm okay with the idea of being brought back to repentance for, the, for somebody experiences, experiencing genuine repentance for the very first time. Also, when it describes there, the term it uses that often someone will use the idea of losing your salvation, it describes them as fallen away. When you see uh, here of somebody that's fallen away, you, it sounds like something that they had at one point and then they lost. But I think in my mind, my explanation for understanding that in this context is it's often that we see that somebody starts heading down one road and kind of loses interest, loses passion and kind of drifts off to another road. I remember I talked about this quite a bit during COVID. I picked up a new hobby when I had some extra time on my hands where I was mountain biking quite a bit. And I shared some of my failings with that. For a season there, I was super passionate about mountain biking. But now, since I'm going to be honest with you, kind of drifted away from it. As life has filled up, gotten back into some other routines, some different uh, uh, habits. Now I try to get out maybe once or twice uh, a, a month or maybe a couple times a, a month, but it's definitely become something that's no longer a major priority. So this, the whole idea of falling away is something that we often see demonstrated in life and is what is described here in the text where you seem like they're heading that direction and then they pulled away from him. Now, the part that's also tricky to understand because it tells us that for that person, that was exposed to all of that, that was introduced to all of that, that went down that road, it says that it's impossible for them to return to repentance. Now reading that, you might say, Pastor Scott, that seems very inconsistent with what you regularly teach, the idea that we have until we breathe our very last breath here on earth. We have the opportunity to repent, and come to Jesus to embrace what his finished work on the cross represents and to have forgiveness of sin. And that really we can have that opportunity until we run out of days. So what is it saying here? Why would it say that it's impossible for somebody to, after they've been introduced to it, to come back to it later? Why would that be the case? Like this explanation I read this week, many believe this to mean that if a person rejects God at the peak experience of knowledge and conviction, they will not accept him at a lesser level. In other words, the window has closed is what it seems to teach. There's this point, and really you could probably point to any person's life where the Holy Spirit is convicting, is working. The pounding on the door of their heart is so loud that it seems irresistible. But when that person at the peak of God's pursuit chooses to reject 
his invitation, he's saying in the text here that that may be the very last point. If they're not going to respond to that loud of a knock, why in the world would you expect that they would respond to a quiet knock later on? As John MacArthur describes it, he says, as John MacArthur says, it, it, in their hearts they have said that is the same verdict that we have as those who crucified him. So that's why in the text it says, to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So basically, when we reject him, we're joining the crucifiers in saying the exact same thing. And saying what they said, crucify him. We want nothing to do with him. So that's the picture that he's painting here. It's a pretty intense one. And he tries to give a one more example to help us make sense out of this. He describes, you see it there in the text, he describes land. And this land, again, kind of like this back one the, with the seed that I described earlier. Does, the land is describing someone's heart. It helps us understand this section that, that they hear the gospel. And the gospel, I like that picture of the gospel, is like rain falling down on the earth. It's, it's refreshing. It sounds good. It's enticing to us. But on some, it's well-received. It's, it, it's well-received. It bears crops. It fulfills its purposes. And it's ultimately blessed by God. But that same land that experienced the same degree of rain that was exposed to the same thing may also, unfortunately, produce thorns and thistles, is what the text describes, which is deemed worthless and will ultimately, what does it say? Be burned. You're like, wait a second, pastor. Is the author actually saying what, he, what I think he's saying? That the one that rejects the provision of Jesus is only good for burning? See, the truth is, as, as hard as some of the stuff in Scripture is to absorb, when you actually stop and think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a, a, a lot of sense. If this entire universe, if this entire universe was created by Jesus, is sustained by Jesus, is created for Jesus, wouldn't it make sense that those who want nothing to do with him wouldn't really have a place necessary in this universe. And so really you think about it, you, you can't blame them for that. It makes logical sense. And then when you play it out even further, you're like, in the pursuit that he's had for each of those people, willing to come down off of his throne, live a, a perfect life as an example to demonstrate healing and love and, and, and uh, selflessness and then ultimately dying on a cruel cross for their rescue. If after all of that, they still say, no, thank you. At what point is there justice in saying, man, there, there's no use for that existence in eternity. And so here's the, the reality of this. He, he's wanting to point us to the seriousness of what's at stake. Now, as a pastor, I'm reading through a section of scripture like this, and you're like, man, I don't necessarily want to teach this. It's not a necessarily a, a fun section to outline or to highlight. But really, I think of the words of the apostle Paul writing to the Philippians and his charge to them, I think is a similar charge for us still today. Philippians 2.12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, 
but much more in my absence. So basically, while I was there, you obeyed the things, that, the direction I was giving you. I love you. I care about you. Now what's he asking him to do? He says, now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I think when we're looking at this, this letter written to the, uh, the, the, these Hebrew believers, he, he's wanting to make sure that they're taking this seriously. They're giving this the appropriate attention that it deserves. So as tempted as I was to try to turn a corner and make this a little bit more of a, a lighter subject or a lighter ending, I don't feel in good conscience I can do that. So I'd rather just give us the gift of just a moment and a pause in this message for you to reflect on how this relates to you. Who are you in this story? Are you the person that he's saying, listen, man, I'm expecting that there's growth, but I'm not seeing any growth. It doesn't even seem as he's charging these people, it doesn't even seem like you're working at it anymore. Is that you in this story? Or are you? The person that's leaning into God saying, man, I'm dependent on you for movement forward and you're seeing progress. It might not be the progress you want to see, but you're seeing movement forward. He charges us at the end. Don't be the person that was exposed to all of this, but didn't respond. That had at the, at the peak of God's conviction. And it's kind of crazy even to think this right now, somebody might be listening and this might be the very peak of God's conviction in their life where they're hearing the knock really hard of the Holy Spirit that's saying, come to me, I want relationship with you. But here's the opportunity for you to reflect on how you're going to respond to what this section of scripture points to. So I'll just be quiet just for a few moments before I close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this section of scripture. And it's so often in life, we realize some of our closest friends and best friends are the people that will shoot straight with us and tell us like it is. And so we're thankful for this section of scripture that has packed with warning that salvation shouldn't be taken lightly. And we can't presume on something that happened 20 years ago. And then there's been no evidence or fruit from it since then. Think your word is kind to us and wanting to caution us that there's a consistency between what we claim to believe and the life in which we live. God, we recognize even as he did that, man, we can't do this on our own. It's all Lord willing. It's all God dependent. We're dependent on you for not just our salvation, but also for our growth. So even again, as we come on a consistent basis to you, we're coming and asking for your help. We need you. We're desperate for you. We don't ever want to fall into the delusion that we can do this on our own. So we submit even this text to you now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. amen. When the sea is calm and all is right When I feel your favor flood my life even in the good, I'll follow you. Even in the good, I'll follow you.
follow you when the boat is tossed upon the waves when i wonder if you'll keep me safe even in the storms i'll follow you even in the storms i'll follow you believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. When I see the wicked prospering, when I feel I have no voice to sing, even in the want I'll follow you. Even in the want I'll Heart. I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. When I find myself so far from home, and you lead me somewhere that I don't want to go, even in my death, I'll follow you. Even in my death, I'll follow you. And when I come to win this race, I run. And I receive the prize that Christ has won. I will be with you in paradise. I will be with you. I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. Oh, and I believe everything that you say you are. And I believe and I see your unchanging heart in the good things and in the hardest part. I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. All right, church family. Well, again, thanks for being with us online as usual. Anyway, we can serve you during the week. Always feel free to reach out. My hope and my prayer is that this would be continually an encouragement to you. And sometimes encouragement comes in the form of a, a nudge. Sometimes it's a, a vataboy. Uh, we take it however it comes as we work through God's word. Thanks for staying the course. God bless you. Have a great week.